We're in a series about Christmas. <clears throat> Who needs Christmas? Today's topic is God did. That might sound a little strange, but hopefully it'll make more sense in a little bit. <clears throat> we talk about the whole Christmas story when we're kids. It's kind of fun. And then we grow up and think that's kind of like a fairy tale, right? We've got angels and virgin births and all these other things, and it just kind of doesn't seem real. It's hard to imagine. If you struggle with that, I, I understand. But then we, as we looked at last week, the story is actually so remarkable, it doesn't start with, with 2,000 years ago, it starts with 4,000 years ago. And we said last week, who needs Christmas? Uh, the world did. God decided the world did. And so he comes to this guy by the name of Abram and says, hey, <laughs> you're going to be the father of a great nation. He's 75 years old, no children. Oh, sure, God. I, yeah, I believe that. And he said, I want you to, to leave your home, to travel to another place. And this guy actually does it. And God gives him these three incredible, unbelievable, just mind-boggling <laughs> promises. He says, first, <clears throat> you're going to bless all the nations of the world. Uh, sure, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. People don't even know I exist. I don't even have any kids. How is that possible? He said, <clears throat> secondly, he said, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles, the people that don't worship me. And that seemed impossible. And then he said, <clears throat> excuse me, that your God, Yahweh, me, is going to be worshipped by people all over the world. Again, just incomprehensible, crazy promise 4,000 years ago. And then God decided the world did. But even more unbelievable, maybe, is the fact that not only the world needed Christmas, but God needed Christmas. Now, let me try and explain it this way. Those of you who are parents... Have you ever laid in bed at night after you've disciplined your kids and they yelled at you and said they hated you and they never wanted to speak to you again or whatever? And just with that agony of your kids treating you that way and thinking, I just wish they would understand how much I love them. I wish they would understand how much I care and I want what's best for them and I would do anything for them, even though right now it seems like they don't, actually they don't like what I'm doing. Uh, that's my heart. And that's true of all of us that are parents. Now, as difficult that it is, is human to human, that you really would love for your kids to just trust you have their best interests at heart, imagine being God. And so I put this question on your outline. How does God, who is a spirit, anybody ever seen God? Okay, I haven't. How does God, a spirit, communicate how much he loves you and me. If I have trouble communicating that to my kids in the flesh, how does God communicate that being invisible to us? And the short answer is Christmas. And so that's what I'd like to talk about this morning. Now we're going to look at a guy named Paul. Paul is a really fascinating character because when Jesus was here on earth, or after he left and church got started, he hated Christianity. He thought it was a, a heresy. And so he somehow got the authority to lock up Christians and even to kill them. And he stood around and watched as, as Stephen was stoned. All right, then he has this dramatic encounter with God. And, he, and Paul's a really smart guy. He's a, he's a Pharisee. He knows the Bible from backwards and forward, the Old Testament. And uh, so God knows his heart. He's transformed. And now he uses that knowledge and he uses that, that his intelligence and he uses that passion for God, and he starts churches all over, and most of you know about, about all that. But knowing the Old Testament so well, and then having this encounter with Jesus, 
he could see the Old Testament as like a cocoon and then Christianity is the butterfly. And all that stuff in the Old Testament was just leading up and, and preparing the world for Jesus. Now we're going to start where we, 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 where we were last week. Where he's talking about this, this, this time when Jesus comes. And he puts it this way. <clears throat> but when the right time came. Now why was 2,000 years ago the right time? And I got two basic answers for you. Empire and temple. Now, this was the first time in the history of the world that there was peace in the world. It was called Pax Romana, or Roman peace. The Romans had just kind of dominated or controlled everybody, so there was peace. I mean, the Israelites were occupied, but they were peaceful because the Romans were so powerful. And so there was peace throughout the world. There was a, the best uh, transportation system the world had ever seen, roads and, and boats and ports and so forth. And now there was a common language, the Roman language, well, Greek first and then a Roman language. So there was a common language, so people could travel around the, the, the Mediterranean world anyway and understand. And so politically, this was, and, and transportation-wise and so forth, uh, this was the best time in the world to get this message out. Now, this went on for a couple hundred years, and then the Dark Ages came, and for another thousand years, up until about 500 years ago, there was never a better time. And so, politically, uh, economically, this was the best time. But then the other reason was, was the temple. The temple system had been around for a thousand years, and, and this was the way that the, the Israelites kind of connected with God, and, and the temple kind of gotten corrupt, and, and money became more important than people, and... Yeah, they worshiped God, but people really were unimportant. And, and uh, it just wasn't very positive. It wasn't very hopeful. So God wanted to come when he would not be forgotten, when he wouldn't slip through the cracks. And before this, he probably would have. And, and like I said, a couple hundred years later, during the Dark Ages, he probably would have. But this time, he didn't. The proof is 2,000 years ago, right? We still know and remember. So the verse goes on at the right time. It was the right time for what? For God to send his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Now, why did God have to send someone? Why did he have to send his son? Why did he have to send his son in a body? Why did he have to send his son in a baby body? So many questions. And the short answer is he had to become one of us for us to believe Another reason is because the law couldn't do it. The temple and the law and the Old Testament just wasn't providing what people needed. It wasn't connecting people in a personal way with God. So God wanted to be, do something personal. He wanted to do something relational. And the only way he could do that is to show up in a body. And then he goes on to say this amazing thing. God sent him, his son, Jesus, to buy freedom for us who are slaves to the law, or the Bible says slaves to sin and the law. So we try and keep the law and we can't, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Now, try and imagine you're a slave, and I have the resources to buy you out of slavery. So I do that and say, okay, you're no longer a slave, you're go you can go free. Now, you'd be thankful for that, but we would have no relationship, would we? And you could go your way and I would go my way. That would be really great that I would do that for you, but there wouldn't be any relationship. 
So God didn't just set us free. He said, no, 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 no. It's so much better than that. I want to adopt you into my family. I want to make you equal with all my children. This is better than just setting you free. This is becoming personal. This is becoming relational. This is establishing a love relationship. So I put on your outline, God took the first step to remove all the obstacles on unrestricted fellowship or relationship. Right? He took the first step. He, came, he left heaven and came to earth. How do we know where we stand with God unless God came to stand with us? We have an expression, actions speak louder than words, right? Now this is the amazing thing, the fascinating thing. If you're not a Jesus follower and you, you kind of think, question all this stuff, I understand that. But try and answer a couple of these questions. Why in the world are people, hundreds, millions of people all over the world still talking about a Jewish carpenter that lived 2,000 years ago? How do you explain that? He never went anywhere. He never was very important. Uh, he never had any political office. He went around teaching people. He did some miracles. And then he was executed by the Romans. Why, 2,000 years ago, uh, 2,000 years later, are we still talking about this Jewish carpenter's son? How do you explain that? And think about all the people that have been important through history. You know, I went to the University of Maryland, and the buildings have names on them. <laughs> and I know it's somebody that was famous sometime, but they didn't mean a thing to me, right? It might have only been 20, 30 years earlier that this person was famous and put his name on this building. So famous people come, famous people go, go. Nobody remembers them, do they? I was a history major in college, so I probably know more history than most of you, but all the important people that lived all these centuries, how many do we still remember? And people that were considered really important during their time. Yet again, we remember, and we're still talking about a Jewish carpenter's son. And then what we're going to look at next was written, Paul wrote to a, a church in Rome about 25 years after Jesus. <clears throat> now imagine this. The Roman Empire controlled the world at this time, Nero was emperor, and he hated Christians. He was having them executed and crucified. Now, how in the world would there be a church in Rome under those conditions 25 years after Jesus? How do you explain that? So, God had to show up. God had to show us. God had to demonstrate his love for us. How did he do that? What did he do? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm thinking Paul writing this, and he's thinking in present tense, and he's thinking, okay, I, I, I was arresting Christians, and I was killing Christians, and, and, and now I'm still not doing what I should do, and I'm doing stuff I shouldn't do, and, and uh, he wrote this a little bit later in Romans chapter 7. And while I'm a mess up, a screw up, God, we call sinner, in that situation, Christ died for me. Notice the expression, for us. You ever feel like God's against you? Things aren't going right? Or you think God's just ready to, you know, to zap you because you've done something wrong? Don't ever feel that way. God is always for us. And the demonstration of that is Christmas. 
and of course, eventually, Easter. Christ died for us. Now, why did he have to die? Not only why did he have to die, why did he have to die at a young age, a cruel, horrible death? The lashings, the beatings, the crown of thorns and all, carrying the cross and then being eventually crucified. Why? Why couldn't he just shown up and said, hey, everybody, I'm God. Why didn't he just pronounce everybody forgiven? Okay, everybody's forgiven. You can go home now. Let me give you a couple of reasons. One, one he tried this. It didn't work. And it's different times in the Bible. One I like, remember that story about guys, the, pair, the guy couldn't walk, and they couldn't get in the house. They tore a hole in the roof, and they lowered this guy down in front of Jesus. And Jesus having this conversation, and eventually he doesn't say, I'm going to heal you. He says, your sins are forgiven. Then he heals him, he gets up and walks out. Now the religious leaders are there, and what, what freaks them out? The fact that this guy that couldn't walk now walks? I mean, that's what freaked most of us out, right? Now what freaked them out was if he said, your sins are forgiven. And they're saying, no, you can't do that. You can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. So he tried that. Nobody believed it. Another reason is God has kind of set up this mathematics in the Old Testament. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, it's God's rules, so God's fulfilling his own rules by saying, okay, blood has to be shed. But maybe the biggest and strongest reason is this. Jesus is the author of life. And life is so amazing, so tremendous, we don't really understand it very well even today. But just even 100 years ago, we just discovered what germs were, right? And you go back and read the Old Testament, there's all these rules and regulations God knew about germs 3,000 years ago. And he was telling the Israelites, not using that word, but he's saying, don't do this and do this. This is the way you're going to keep from getting sick and, 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 and germs and so forth. And now we know how amazing the body is. And I, we, we, we continue to discover stuff. In fact, in the first service, a guy is thinking about giving his kidney to somebody else. And he asked us to pray about it. He said, they had this program at Hopkins where if your kidney's not quite the right match for somebody else, and somebody else's kidney is the right match for that person, but yours is for somebody else, you can switch kidneys. How amazing is that? So Jesus is the author of life. And so if you dishonor the source of life, it's a huge expression of ingratitude. You and I should get up every morning and thank God, thank you for life. Thank you for another day. Or maybe when we go to bed, thank you for the day I had today. Because God gives life and God takes life. So it's an expression of ingratitude deserving the forfeiture of life. And you and I own our life, every day of our lives to God. And yet daily we shake our fist to God and say, okay, God, I know you want me to do this, but I'm going to do this. Or I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. How ingrateful is that? Parents, what is the thing that drives you crazy the most about your kids? It's when they're ingrateful, right? You know, you've sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed for your kids, and if they're ungrateful, it just drives you crazy, doesn't it? And yet we are so ungrateful to God. So constantly we deserve the forfeiture of our life. The Bible says the wage of sin is death. As soon as you and I screw up, God can zap us. That's what we deserve. We're ungrateful. 
So this interesting thing happens. Jesus becomes resurrected from the grave. He hangs out with the disciples for about 40 days. Then he leaves. He gives them marching orders. He gives them instructions. He says, you know, tell the world about me. He said, but you got to wait. And so he waited for 10 days until we call this, this, this Pentecost thing. And the fascinating thing is the same disciples that were scared to death and ran away and denied Jesus 50 days earlier now are going out into the streets and telling the very people that crucified Jesus, <laughs> you killed the author of life. No fear whatsoever. And so Peter's preaching these sermons, and we're going to just read a couple of verses. He says, you, you Jews, you rejected the Holy Righteous One, the Messiah, who indeed demanded the, instead abandoned the release of a murder. Now imagine this. Okay, we got Jesus. Did he ever do anything to hurt anybody? I mean, the worst thing he did, I think, was turn those tables over in a temple. Uh, he never did anything to anybody. And then you have a murderer here. And you ask the crowd, who do you want released to us? This guy's a murderer. If we let him go, he's probably going to murder somebody else. All right? Or Jesus. And they say, crucify Jesus. Give us Barabbas. How insane is that? And he says, you guys did this. You're to blame. And then he describes it, uh, Jesus, as the author of life. He says, you killed <clears throat> the author of life. Now, can you really kill the author of life? No. He gives and takes life. So you can't really kill him. So, you, yeah, he, he, he died, but, of course, he got raised back the dead, raised from the dead because he is the author of life. He said, we're witnesses of this fact. We've seen it with our own eyes. We're witnesses. This is a fact. This is 100% true. So Jesus' death, this is on your outline, demonstrates the magnitude of our ingratitude, but also the magnitude of his love for us. Again, when your kids are ungrateful, why does that bug you so much? Because all you do is love them. <laughs> and they're ungrateful. How can that be? Talking about the magnitude of love, this is really important. You cannot demonstrate love without sacrifice. You cannot dis- demonstrate love without sacrifice. Talk is cheap, right? Some of you are dating. We just say, especially you ladies. If some guy says, if you love me, you, you, know, you know what? You say, no, if you love me, you win, right? Demonstrate it. Sacrifice. Don't sacrifice. Talk is cheap. You never know how much somebody loves you until you know how much they'll sacrifice for you. The greater the sacrifice, we would say the greater the love, right? And so Paul, again, talking to the Romans, he's talking about this, and he says, well, first he says we're helpless. You're utterly helpless. We can't fix this problem we have with God. Can't. Completely helpless. We need somebody to rescue us. We can't do it ourselves. Christ came just at the right time. Again, he's talking about this right time to die for us sinners. So people that are unlovable. Who's the most unlovable person you can think of? Is it some terrorist or some child abuser? For me, it's, it's probably a child abuser. That's just me personally. But you pick your person. Who is the most unlovable person you can think of? And in reality, it's worse than that as God looks at us. We are completely unlovable. We think we're lovable, don't we? <laughs> But we're completely unlovable. That's what it means when he says he died for us sinners or unlovable people. 
And he uses this illustration. For most of us wouldn't die for a, for a good person, <clears throat> for an upright person. Though some of us might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. I couldn't think of anybody I would die for other than my wife and kids and grandkids, right? And that's for sure. Sorry, folks, there's nobody else here I'd die for. I just, <laughs> I'm just not, okay? Uh, so that's just true of all of us, right? But then God, but God showed his love for us, his great love for us, by sending Christ to die for us. So what greater demonstration of sacrifice or love than to sacrifice an only son? I don't think it's much bigger than that, right? The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. Again, while we're still unlovable. See, we're a rebel race. Again, we shake our fist at God. And so this is the situation 2,000 years ago when there's no hope. If you're a Jew, Roman, you're occupied by the Romans. You've been looking for the Messiah forever. He's not shown up. And now the temple is just kind of uh, just a, more of a bother than a help. There's no hope. And then we get to Christmas. And Matthew describes it this way. Joseph, he's found out his fiance is pregnant, okay? Can you imagine? All right, and he's a good guy, so he doesn't want to, you know, harm her or anything. He's thinking about putting her away quietly. And this angel comes to him, again, angels, and said in a dream, Joseph, son of David, remember how important that was? He's a descendant from that guy, Abraham, right? Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid of the ridicule. Don't be afraid of who this child is. Don't, just don't be afraid. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Kind of hard to believe, right? Guys, if your wife, fiance told you that, you'd say, yeah, sure. And that's exactly the situation here. But God came so that Joseph would believe in, in the form of an angel. And he said, you'll have a son before sonograms, right? There was going to be a son. The name in Jesus, that wasn't a family name. It was a name that had importance. He will save his people from their sins. God was willing to leave heaven and get his hands dirty. We can't imagine how big a sacrifice that is. And then he goes on. And all this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message to the prophet Isaiah, like 800 years earlier. He said, a virgin will conceive a child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with them then, but also God with us today, right? God with us. I want to end with this, this story. It's a true story. <clears throat> it happened a few years ago. And there was this young couple in California. And uh, like all young couples get married, especially the wives, going to live heavily, happily ever after, right? And it just isn't all happily ever after, is it? And they had some rocky times and some struggles and had a couple kids and she was just feeling overwhelmed and she was, you know, her dream had died and she was just, she was depressed and uh, she, she just had to get out. And so one morning he wakes up and there's a note by the bed saying, I had to leave. His wife left. So he calls her on her cell phone and sometimes she answered but wouldn't speak. Other times she would, wouldn't answer. And he would say the same thing every day. He would call. I love you, I care about you, I miss you, we need you, please come home. Nothing. This goes on for about 10 days. He said, what else can I do? So he hires a private detective to find her. About a week later, he gets a call from the private detective, and it's about uh, a week before Christmas. He says, I found her. She's in a sleazy motel in Las Vegas. 
So a couple days later, she's in the hotel. She's depressed. She has no hope. She's feeling not loved. She's alone. She's lonely. And she hears a knock on the door. And she doesn't want to answer it. The knock gets louder. So eventually goes to the window and pulls the curtain back, and there her husband stands. She throws open the door, and she jumps into his arms, packs her bag, and goes home with her. Christmas passes. They put the tree away. The kids go back in school. And one day, he just asks her, why wouldn't you come home, and why did you come home when you did? She said, yeah, you said you loved me. You said you cared, and you said you missed me. But I didn't believe it until you came. And God tells us he loves us and he cares about us. But it's hard for us to believe it until he came. So I put that on the island. We needed to see it to really believe it. God needed Christmas. He had to be with us so we know he was for us. Again, never doubt that he is for us. So some of you have heard this before. Some of you have been Jesus followers for a long time. But maybe this is an aha moment for you. Maybe today it just, all of a sudden it made sense. Today it just clicked. And you know the verse, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Believes in means to trust in. Let me illustrate it this way. I can believe this, this chair will hold my weight, but I don't really trust it until I sit in it. Right? And so God wants to adopt everyone into his family. So I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm especially going to pray for anyone that today is an aha moment. And you might have been a a Jesus follower in the past. You might have even gotten baptized. But today it finally clicked. I had somebody I saw this week just tell me a couple years ago, to church all his life, a couple years ago it just clicked for him, actually here at our church. I call this a transfer of trust. Who do you trust in if you don't trust in Jesus? Trust in yourself, right? So I'm asking you to transfer that trust to Jesus this morning. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for such an enormous demonstration of love. We can't comprehend the sacrifice of leaving heaven. We can't com- comprehend the sacrifice of loving us as so unlovable. But you demonstrated it. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love, and there's no greater sacrifice than that. So we are loved. You are for us. Question, are we for you? Do we accept it? It's a gift. We couldn't do it. We have to be rescued. We're, we're helpless. We're hopeless without it. So I'd like to ask anyone here today, if they'd like to step across the line, just say, yes, Jesus. I'm going to start following you today. They may not believe even in that Christmas story. That's what it's about. It's about the resurrected Jesus. God, I, th- I thank you for these folks here. Most of these folks have been Jesus followers for a while. We thank you for the Christmas season. It's just full of, so full of joy. It's because of the sacrifice you made for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.